Genesis chapter 1, our text. And uh, I'm going to read for us verse 1 and then down 26 to 28, okay? Genesis 1, 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Then down at 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Pray with me again, friends. Lord, this is your holy word. May we handle it with wisdom, with Christ-likeness, in submission. May we gain from it and find joy in it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to imagine with me that you're driving down the road on a fairly warm Las Vegas day. Like today. How hot is it out there right now, by the way? Yeah, too hot. Thank you. From the back. What is it, like 105? Something like that? But it is a dry heat, right? Suddenly, as you drive down the road, you hear a sound coming from under the hood. Have you guys ever heard a sound coming from under the hood? You know it's a problem, so you ease the vehicle off the side of the road, and you pop the hood, and you look to see what you can do. Or if you're like many of us, you just look to look like you're looking, because you don't know. Now, two different people stop by to offer you advice and help as to what to do with your car. And I want to know from y'all whose advice you're willing to take. One person happens to be the mechanical engineer who designed your engine, built its prototype, and who knows every part of your engine inside and out. The other person is a limousine driver who owns a car but has never fixed one before. Whose advice would you take? The engineer or the limo driver? Okay, that's probably smart, right? We want to hear how to fix the car from the person who designed it and who knows how it's supposed to work. How strange, then, that so many people in the world we live in refuse to hear the instructions of the designer of our lives and instead listen to culture. Friends, we have the word of the designer of our lives to help us know how things operate best. And we need desperately to hear him. Over the past couple of weeks, we've worked together in a few of the Psalms to establish some important foundational points. And one of those lessons we learned, Psalm 19, is that God's word is the only way that you and I can know him. Scripture is perfect the revelation of God to man, and shows us who God is and what God requires. We can rely on the Bible to teach us 
who God is and what we need to know about every area of life. We can rely on the Bible to teach us about the things in life that are simple and the issues that are emotionally charged. We can rely on the Bible to teach us about the things that are easy to understand and the ones that are, shall we say, socially uncomfortable. In that same psalm, Psalm 19, we were reminded of the goodness of God. His word is perfect. His law is righteous altogether. His standards will be just. They will be right from the beginning to the end of days and everywhere in between. God has never commanded anything that is wrong. Y'all buy that? You better. God has never had a standard that needed to be changed to fit the times. God is good, perfect, loving, holy. Psalm 1830 says, This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. We also studied Psalm 139 and we took some time to remember the glory of God. God made us. God knows us inside and out. He designed us. God knows you better than you know yourself. God knows better than you do who you are. God knows better than you do what you are. God knows better than you do the reason you exist. God knows better than you do what will give you the ultimate joy. And even in our little look at the Baptist Catechism today, what do we say? God is the first and best of beings. Isn't that good news? There's no God like the real God. There's no person you have ever met who could know you or love you like the Lord God knows you and loves you. And if God is that wise and that good, it is good for us to see things God's way. Wouldn't you agree? Well, today, I want us to begin a theological discussion about the topic of marriage, sexuality, and many things related to that in our humanity. We're going to take some time over a few sermons, Lord willing, to see God's plan and God's standard for human beings as it relates to marriage, sex, gender, and all sorts of other related things. Now, first of all, if you know our church, you know topical teaching is not our norm. There's a reason for this. Why this topic now, you ask? Okay, you didn't ask, but I'm going to tell you anyway. First, our study of the book of Ephesians has brought us to the section that's called the household codes. Ephesians 5, 22 to 6, 9, you remember that stuff? We're going to see Paul inspired by the Lord God, set out for us the standards of God for wives and husbands, children and parents, servants and masters. But before we talk about what God says through Paul up to wives and husbands about how we're supposed to live, it seemed wise that we would look at the background material so we can understand the biblical context into which Paul delivers that standard. We need to know what Paul means when he uses the terms wife and husband. And second, other reason, but still very important. Wouldn't you say it's always a good time to talk about those issues? 
Our world is presently inundated with discussion, debate, and disagreement on issues of marriage, gender, sexuality. And if you're going to be able to think faithfully and speak clearly in this climate, you have to know what the Word of God says. Now, I will not pretend that this, if you learn this and speak it clearly, I will not pretend this will make the world love you. But I will declare to you that we're going to do everything we can to know how to please God in our thinking here and to see the goodness of God in God's design. So let's begin a biblical theology of marriage. And where, dear friends, would you begin a biblical theology of marriage? If not, the beginning. Shouldn't that be where you start? By the way, in case some of you are nerds and want to know the answer to this question, Biblical theology, when you use that terminology formally, what that means is you find a a topic that's in the Bible and you start at the beginning and you go through toward the end and you look at how the the topic is discussed and developed over the different types of books. So you say, what what do we see about this theology in Genesis and in the Pentateuch? What does it say about it in the law or in, in the prophets? What does it say about it in the New Testament? And you sort of trace it straight through. Systematic theology will take the most prominent verses first and then build your understanding uh, off of those. Both are very valid ways to study the Word of God. We're going to do biblical theology and start in the beginning. Fair enough? In the beginning, Genesis 1. What's it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How many of y'all could have quoted that one for me if I'd asked? Okay. Couple of you. How many of you could have but aren't going to tell me? There you go. <laughs> I, I, I know you people. I hope lots of you could, though. Friends, that is one of the most significant sentences ever written in the history of the universe. You get that? That verse teaches us something about God, which will eventually teach us something about us. And I would argue, if you are willing to believe that verse, if you are willing to believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, you should have no trouble believing anything else that you read in the Bible. That verse, if you buy it, no miracles hard to grasp, right? Genesis 1-1 tells us God did something. So right away, we know that God exists. We know that God takes action. We know that God did what God did in the beginning. In the beginning, which tells us if God did it in the beginning, he exists before anything else exists. He can't do something in the beginning if he's not there to do it before the beginning. So before everything else is, God is. There is no beginning to God. Nothing made God. No one made God. God is eternal. God is self-existent. Again, Owen, who is the first and best of beings? Very good. And if God is first of the first and best of beings, then no one can be before him because first is first, y'all. With me? Now, what God did here is stunning. He created the heavens and the earth. God, by God's power, did a thing that no one but he could ever do. God spoke and the universe came into being. God willed and that which was not began to be. God breathed and matter which did not previously exist 
existed. God made everything out of nothing with no material to help him. A couple weeks ago, Anthony spoke to us about the beauties of peach cobbler. Does anybody remember that? Is Anthony here, by the way? No? Anyway, he talked about the beauties of peach cobbler. He did a great job in his message, by the way. And I want you to know, I agree with Anthony that peach cobbler is a wonderful thing. How many of you agree with that, with that truth? Peach cobbler is a good thing. Amen. Anybody disagree with that? Because that'd be weird. Now, here's the thing. You can want peach cobbler all you want. You can close your eyes and say peach cobbler, peach cobbler, peach cobbler to yourself all that you want. You could stand on a mountaintop and demand peach cobbler. But you know, if somebody doesn't take some existing materials, butter, flour, peaches, salt, baking powder, sugar, milk, cinnamon, nutmeg, but definitely not too much, more sugar, probably more butter, if they don't take those existing ingredients and put them together and bake them, you're not getting a peach cobbler. We need materials to make things. But God spoke and he created everything out of nothing. That makes him way different than you and me. Here we're reminded of God's power, God's wisdom, God did a thing you can't do. And God designed everything that exists. That means God knows how everything works. And there's one more thing I want you to see from this verse. This is really important. God has the right of ownership over all things. Why does God have the right of ownership over all things? Because he made them. He did so without using anybody else's stuff. Again, imagine you create a work of art. Maybe it's a painting. Maybe it's a crafter of something. Maybe it's a peach cobbler. You use your own money to buy your own materials. You use your own space to put it all together. When the work of art is finished, it is yours. You can do with it whatever you like, right? You made it. You can display it. You can throw it in the trash. You can eat it, depending on what it is, obviously. It's yours, right? You can do with it whatever you want. But understand, dear friends, God made you by his own power. You and I, we are his and he has the right to do with us any little thing he desires. He owns the universe. There is no part of the planet that is not totally God's property. And there's no living thing that does not ultimately belong to God. God has full right to tell us exactly what to do and how to do it. Because we belong to him. So for our purposes today, we must learn God is our creator. He knows us because he designed us. And he owns us because he created us. 
And all of that's good because God is almighty, all-knowing, all-present, all-good, the first and best of beings. Now, where do we come in in all this, right? Verse 1, Genesis says, in summary, God made everything that exists. But the rest of the chapter is going to tell you how he did it. Over a period of six days, the Lord spoke things into being and arranged them in such a way as to be a working world. And there's a rhythm to the creation process. God creates a thing, declares it good. There's evening and morning. We name the day. God creates a thing, declares it good. There's evening and morning. We declare the day. And we see that rhythm five times. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. And that's what will show you that something really special is taking place when God breaks the rhythm for climax in day six. Look down at 126. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. All of a sudden, after all that rhythm of creation day, same type of day, same type of day, same type of day, God stops and has a conversation. Now with whom is God having this conversation? With himself, with God. God is communicating with himself. The Bible lets us know that there's only one God, but that God is revealed to us as a holy trinity, three persons who remain one God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit eternally exist as God in a perfect holy relationship of love and unity, the one true God. And know this, if the God any person claims to worship is not triune, they are not worshiping the God revealed in the Bible. And God declares that he is going to create man. This is the plan for humanity, for you and me. And the first thing he tells us is that we are to be made in his image, his likeness. This is special. No animal, no plant, no fish, no heavenly body exists in the image of God. Only mankind does. And this concept, being made in the image of God, it is tremendously valuable to us in understanding humanity. And that, of course, is vital to us, our understanding, our lives, our marriage, our gender, our sexuality. Everything else is bound up in understanding this. So we cannot skip what some of you might think, well, Travis, get to the marriage stuff. We can't skip this if we're going to get there. So I want to give you four categories that separate us from everything else in creation and which show us as having been made in the likeness of God. So there's, you know, a few things to think about. We're going to talk about personality, eternality, authority, and glory. First, personality. God is a person. God's a person, whereas all other elements of creation that we've seen are not. No animal, no plant, no star. I don't mean a peep like movie star. I mean like the things in the sky. 
No star is a person, but God is personal. God has a mind. God has a will. God has emotions. God plans. He makes actual choices. He makes decisions based on more than instinct or chemistry. God is not a blind force. And that makes humanity like God in our personhood because we have souls. We have a will. We have a mind. We have emotions. We can plan for the future. We can make moral decisions. And consider how different that makes you and me from unreasoning animals. Dogs do not consider morality. Dogs don't look at a couch, consider chewing on it, and think to themselves, well, you know, if I do this, I'll be destroying the property of another. And that's very similar in many respects to robbery. And I don't want to rob somebody, so I probably won't chew on this. Dogs don't think like that. A dog just decides to chew or not based on a desire to chew or based on maybe something that it's been taught by conditioning. I want reward. I fear punishment. But dogs don't make moral decisions. Now, no matter how great a person's goldfish might be, there is no goldfish in the history of the world that is planning for a vacation next April. And even in the jungles, when a, little, when a monkey has a little baby monkey, it is not considering the baby monkey's potential to contribute to monkey kind through future scientific breakthroughs or discoveries. No non-human creature out there is moral. Eaters eat, killers kill. Yes, puppies can be affectionate. Little guys just happily perambulating around your house, walking and licking your face or your feet, whatever they do because they're puppies. They're great. Cats are definitely evil. Not moral, just evil. But none of that's personality. The fact that you think and you plan and you reason and you judge, that means that there's something in you that is like God. It makes you different than everything else that God made. You and I are elevated from the creatures of the world because we're made in the image of God. We have personality. I better go faster here. Eternality. Second, God is eternal. God has no beginning and no end. You know that, right? God's always going to be. Now, you and I have a beginning, but we don't have an end. God has made it clear in Scripture that our souls will last forever. Once human life has been conceived, a soul exists that will last eternally. And people will spend forever somewhere. And they're going to be conscious of their experience. And this, in a small way, depicts God, because God exists forever. Authority, the third one, authority. One of the uses of images in ancient times was to declare the authority of a ruler, of a king. Whether it's the faces of kings on coinage or the statues of kings set up around the kingdom, these these images exist to show the people who see them whose kingdom they're in. Does that make sense? A buddy of mine once went and did evangelism in Cuba. You know what he saw up on the walls of almost every public place, posters of? Who do you think it was? Fidel Castro. Right? Everywhere. 
Why? Because the dictator wanted everybody to know who was in charge. His image was plastered around the country to remind people they are under his rule, kind of like Big Brother in Orwell's 1984. But that's not just something done by bad kings, by the way. Good rulers throughout history have done it too, right? They have statues that are erected to show people that this is the ruler under whose protection you shelter. <laughs> Even the kings of Gondor and the Lord of the Rings had statues set up to show you, right? You're entering the land. You went by the statues of the kings. You're in a new place now. Some of you just had a total nerd moment, didn't you? It's all right. We're glad you're here too. Now, God made humanity in his image. We're like those statues. We're like those faces on coins. God indicates that this has something to do, in verse 26, with us having dominion over the world around us, the fish and the birds and the creeping things. So it's fair to assume that a part of what it means to be created in God's image is to be, uh, <clears throat> sorry, is representative on earth. It, we, we exist in God's image representative of the fact that God is the king. I don't think that came out right yet, but words aren't my biggest skill. We exist as representations to demonstrate to the globe that God is king. That's one of the reasons, that's one of the things it means that you're made in the image of God. God's the king. Our lives are to show that God is the authority. Now the implications of this are massive, by the way. How much value do you think that a person has if you are a little moving representation of the reign and rule of God, the king? You think that gives you some worth? What would happen in Cuba if my buddy started ripping posters down? He would have died. Because you don't go after the ruler, right? To intentionally harm another human being without just cause? is to intentionally attack the very image of your king. It is to throw off restraint. It is to declare you will not be under the lordship of the king. This is why murder is wrong. This is why euthanasia is wrong. This is why abortion is wrong. Because every one of those attacks the king of the universe. Fourth, glory. Glory, fourth. Think about an image as a picture now. How many of y'all have family photos in your home? Yep. What's the point of those crazy things? A photo exists for others to see the attributes of the thing depicted, right? Your family photo is supposed to show off just how lovely you look and let other people see what your family's like. Or even in a painted Portrait. Years ago, you know, the people would actually have to sit still and sit for an artist to do their photo or their portrait. What made a portrait especially good was when something about that portrait communicates to the viewer something of the character or the personality of the person depicted, right? So that a soldier in his portrait looked tough and stern, right? 
and a wife or, you know, some, someone might look sweet and loving and, and kind. Or, you know, there's something about that personality comes out. The portrait exists to display for you something of the attribute of the thing depicted. We exist in the image of God. We are supposed to be little pictures to allow the universe around us to see the greatness, the beauty, the glory of God. God's got a lot of attributes. Some of God's attributes you and I can never share. We can't be omnipresent. God is. We're not going to be all-powerful like God is. We're not going to be uncreated as God is. But some of God's attributes are what theologians would call His communicable attributes. Those are qualities of God's that you can share in. God is kind. God is gracious. God is loving. God is just. God is wise. We can be those things. And when we are those things, we show the world the glory of God. We're made in God's image, friends. We have personality. We have souls where the rest of creation doesn't. We will last forever. The rest of creation does not have that promise. We are representations of the authority of God that gives us great value as images of a king. We exist with a purpose to display to the universe around us the greatness, the majesty, and the glory of God. And all of that gives us our, our value. It gives us our worth, and it gives us our purpose. Verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, finally, we see the creation of humanity. Now, if you're looking at your Bible, do you see anything different about the lines of verse 27 as compared to, say, 26 and 28? What visually do you see there? You can talk to me. It's okay. What's that? They're indented, right? And they're a little shorter, aren't they? What does that indicate? When you're reading the Old Testament and you see little indented lines like that, little short lines, it means that you're reading poetry or a song. For the first time in divine revelation, we see poetry. Something is happening here that is so important, so magnificent, so amazing that God has inspired Moses to go beyond prose to tell us about it. When you see poetry, whatever's repeated is what God seems to be emphasizing. God created. He created. He created. That's emphasized. Mankind did not come into being as a natural result of the rest of creation. Mankind did not come into being through evolutionary processes over billions of years. No, God created us and made us different. We are created in the image of God, unlike the rest of creation. We are here to show the world the things of God. And God emphasizes for the very first time here, gender Though we know that God created animals as male and female. If you're not sure, you can ask Noah about that in a few chapters and he'll tell you all about it. 
But the only place it's particularly emphasized is right here. Notice in the third line of the verse, God declares that he has made man and woman, male and female, in his image. So know that from the outset, men and women are of equal worth, equal value before God. No man is more the image of God than is any woman. No woman is more the image of God than is any man. Equal worth in the genders, however, does not do away with distinctions. I'll take a poll. You tell me, true or false. Men are different than women. (laughs) Women are different than men. Oh, yeah. God may give us different roles. God makes us male and female on purpose. The genders are very much distinct here. And there's nothing in the text that would give you any indication that anyone should be allowed to change from one to the other or to rebel against their assigned sex from birth. Understand that gender gender is part of creation. Now let's apply it, friends. To reject your gender is to reject God's authority over you. It is good to be male if you're born male. It is good to be female if you're born biologically female. Now, let me add love and gentleness here. Some people are tragically confused here. Our society has begun to tell people that your body has nothing to do with your gender. Such a declaration, such gender confusion is not part of God's intent. It is rather a result of the fall of man. But let's, Christians, be kind, recognizing that a lot of the people in the world around us who are wrestling with how to live with their bodies and their desires are dealing with some extremely difficult things. We're not going to be mean-spirited. We're not going to make fun. We're not going to make ugly jokes. And we're not going to do nasty things. We will show love and kindness. But we must never back down from the biblical understanding that God intended men, biologically male people, to be men, and women, biologically female people, to be women. God intended men to marry women and he intended women to marry men. And where our desires do not match the creation order, we must see our desires as outside of the will of God and we must seek loving biblical counsel to honor God as we live out our lives in our masculinity and in our femininity. And if you're hearing this and you want help, someone to talk with about this, if you're struggling with this, I want you to know it is absolutely safe to talk with me or the other elders in our church. We will love you while we tell you the truth. Verse 28. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So after God makes humanity in his own image, God gives humans his blessing and calls them to multiply. Procreation 
having babies is part of God's plan for the human race. God intends that men and women would come together, get married, and have little ones. Now again, before I say anything else about this part of God's plan, I want to realize, I want us all to realize, we live in a broken, fallen world, and not every person is going to have the joy of this experience. Not everybody's going to get married. Even people who want to get married may not find a spouse. And those who do get married sometimes are not blessed with children. And the pain in the lives of those who deeply desire to follow God's command here, it's very great. We need to be loving. We need to be kind. We need to be merciful here. Whether or not God allows you to experience this blessing, you are still a person made by God in God's image for God's glory. So may we pray for each other that God will give us the grace and the comfort to help us live in a hard, broken world, especially when our great desires sometimes go unfulfilled. And may we all realize this, that when all is said and done, God will bless those who are his children with rewards that will outweigh any pain we experience in the here and now. Now what we do want to see, though, from Genesis 1.28, we're almost done if you're checking out on me here, we're almost there. God has a very clear pattern for most of creation. Most men and most women will get married and they are to be families and they're supposed to include children. Little images of God running around and messing up your house. Humanity will fill the earth and work to the glory of God and we will display the glory of God by exercising authority and responsibility. And there is nothing in that blessing, friends, that demands that families have as many children as they possibly can produce. But it does indicate to us that couples who do marry should absolutely expect children to be a part of God's intention for their marriage unless something occurs to prevent it. All right. Take a breath. Yes, you. Take a breath. Are you with me still? All right. How about we go back now and let's see if we can roll this all up into a ball. What are we supposed to understand about ourselves and human beings? Because what we're supposed to understand, whoops, pardon me, those are important things about what it means to be male or female. God has begun to lay for you and me the groundwork for understanding marriage. Some of the sermons in this series will cover more text than this. I don't think this is going to be a 300-year series. But let's go back and collect a few things we need to ponder what the Word of God's talking about when it talks about marriage. So, first, and if you're, if, if you're making notes, these are things you want to write down in, in whatever form you want to write them down, okay? You don't have to use my words, but you need to know these things. First, we're made by God. Amen? And God is powerful and good. God knows us, and he knows what will give us joy. God designed us to find joy in him, and his wisdom as our designer is unsurpassed. Is that not a good truth, by the way? 
We're made by God. God knows us. God designed us. God's got good for us. Second, God owns us. He has the right of ownership over us. If God made the universe, he has the authority and the right to say what it should be. He has the right to do with us and with our lives anything he desires. And we would be crazy to rebel against God there. Third, all people, the ones you like and the ones you don't, all people exist in the image of God. Humans have tremendous worth. We have a supreme purpose because we're made by God in God's image. And we talked about that, right? Having a personality, having life that lasts forever, that's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And, and existing on earth, being created in God's image, that gives us value in the fact that we exist to represent God's authority as the king. And, and we've got value, and we have a purpose and a mission because we exist so that the watching universe can see the glory of God. We exist to glorify God. That's true in every aspect of your life. That is true in your gender and sexuality, that you are to give the glory to the God who made you. What are we at? Fourth now? I didn't actually number these, so I shouldn't have started counting. God created human beings as male and female. Gender is a real thing, and it is absolutely tied to your biology. We can look at your chromosomes and know male or female. I know that's not culturally popular today. I don't hate anybody when I say that. I'm not afraid of anybody when I say that. There is no phobia when I say that. This is just biblical truth. This is part of God's design. Men are not women. Women are not men. We are blessedly and gloriously different, complementary to one another. And rebelling against God's design in your gender is to rebel against God. Just as it would be dishonoring to God for you to attack and hurt somebody else made in God's image, we fight against God, dishonor God, if we fight against the biblical understanding of gender. Fifth-ish. Both men and women are of equal worth in the sight of God. Before God ever talks about your role as a husband or your role as a wife, God makes it clear that both men and women are stamped with his image. Thus, men and women are of equal worth in the eyes of the Lord. Being different from one another and understanding that difference has nothing to do with your value. Sixth. And this one really is going to come out more next week. But I figure, hey, why not throw it in? Because I think we can infer it from this. God created marriage. God put a man and a woman together on purpose. So just as in creation the universe belongs to God, so with the formation of man and woman, marriage belongs to God. This is God's institution, not ours. It is not for any government 
or any individual to define what marriage is because God has designed and God defines what marriage and family are. Seventh, I think, God wants us to multiply. From the charge God gave the first couple, having children is the natural and right result of marriage. If you're single, don't think to yourself, I want to get married, but I don't want kids because I want to be free to have fun. That's not godly. There may be reasons why a couple wouldn't have children for a time. There may be things that prevent a couple altogether, but in general, you should assume marriage equals raising a family. Now, we know in our broken world, some people don't get that joy. And our heart breaks for those who don't get that joy. I'm not trying to be unsympathetic. But for most, there should be no separation from marriage and children. They go together, and they're for the glory of God. Those thoughts, friends, should call you and me to submit to our good God and God's good design. He knows what he's doing. Do you guys believe that? But the truth is, we are natural rebels, aren't we? We fight God at every turn. And our only hope for God to forgive us and make us into what God designed us to be is for us to come to God and find his mercy in Jesus. God the Son, Jesus Christ, came to earth to bring us forgiveness and grace. That's the best news you could ever hear. Jesus died to pay for our sins, and he rose from the grave and proved his mission was a success. And Jesus says that everyone who will turn from their sin and come to him in faith will be forgiven. And with that forgiveness, Jesus will begin in us the process of seeing our lives renewed and repaired. Jesus will start moving us from our state of brokenness, which we fell into because of our sin. He'll move us from our brokenness into God's design for us. It'll take some time. The work's not going to be completed until you meet Jesus face to face. But God has promised forgiveness and life to everyone who's his in Christ. So why not come to Jesus and be saved? That's where you'll find life and purpose. And you'll begin to live out what God intended for you as he made you in his image for his glory. Let's bow together and pray, friends. Father, A lot of things in what we just studied. And I believe they're good. My prayer, Lord, is that not only are they good, but that we would see them, understand them, praise you for them, and seek to obey them. And God, my heart breaks for those who it's especially difficult for. Because some people are born with different types of hearts and different types of desires that are very, very difficult. I plead with you, Lord, have mercy. And I plead with you, Lord, help us as a church never, ever to step away from what your word says about who we are. Help us to find grace in Jesus. And if anyone hears this message and it makes them all mad because I've said things that offend them, I pray that you will help them see what is from your word 
And that if we're offended with your word, God, we're rebelling against you. If there's something I've said that I've offended somebody with because of the way I said it or my personality, I pray you will forgive me and help them to step past that to you. For those who don't know you, I pray they will. And Lord, in all this, as we learn, as we grow, I pray you help us learn to glorify you better. And that's our prayer in Christ's holy name. Amen.